Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Five years ago, Sir Craig Oliver's high-powered job and privileged position as Number 10's Director of Politics and Communications came to an abrupt end after failing to persuade the public to vote Remain. But in the aftermath of one of the nastiest battles in British politics and a failed relationship, Craig came to a realisation. Working harder doesn't always mean you'll find fulfilment. That penny-drop moment put in motion a process of self-reflection, culminating in his new podcast, Desperately Seeking Wisdom. I wanted to make a TV series myself called Desperately Seeking Sanity, uh, so great minds think alike. I'm actually quite annoyed that he's stolen my title. Anyway, throughout this 12-part podcast series, Craig talks to some high-profile and unexpected guests from George Alagaya to Richard Curtis, extraordinary people who've faced extremely difficult experiences, and he finds out what they learned and what they believe will help others gain peace of mind and heart. Here he is. Yeah, we're sort of revealing that we're kind of children of the 80s, aren't we, Mariella? It's sort of a reference to a film that was called Desperately Seeking Susan. And I always thought it was a great title. That sense of trying to find something. um, And and often that's quite a hard journey. And certainly I, I found that. I basically... Um, around the beginning of lockdown, it wasn't actually linked to coronavirus. I found that my life had kind of hit the buffers. I was doing very well in my professional life. Everything was going well, but sort of privately behind the scenes, things just didn't seem to be working out. And I decided I was going to use the time in lockdown to really look into it and read around and, and try and understand and see if there was any wisdom that would be a better way of living life. And the first stuff wasn't great. I read a lot of um, you know modern thinkers who all basically come to the conclusion that we're a bit of a cosmic joke, um, that we're a fluke, an evolutionary fluke. We've got an overdeveloped brain and we're constantly sent on a kind of search for purpose where there isn't any. And I found that pretty depressing. But then I found other other thinkers and writers who said, you should maybe try and shift your perspective on life and try and shift how you see it. 
And it was that moment that I started to feel, okay, these people are onto something and maybe there's a better way of doing things. It's very much a, a podcast about learning lessons from trauma. I wonder what you feel past experiences have taught you. I mean, just going back to, to the, the whole Brexit uh, affair and, and Remain losing, my colleague Matt Chorley just reminded me that, that you said that when you heard that, that Remain had lost in the referendum, you actually vomited. You were so, I mean, I don't know, explain to me, you were so invested in it. Were you personally invested in it? Did it feel like a, a personal rejection? I don't know if I felt that it was personal, but what I did feel was that I was in this situation that I never really expected to be in. I'd been a journalist most of my life. I'd been the editor of the BBC News at six and ten. I'd run the BBC World Service. And then I got asked to go into politics, um, to be the director of politics and communications at number 10. And so when I started that journey back in February 2011, I never really thought I would be in the middle of this incredible divisive battle. And it really did feel like that. And I think at the end of it, the sensation was a bit like being in the trenches, having run out of ammunition, being overrun by the enemy, you know, bayonets on. And it was actually quite a brutal experience. You know, people go through worse things, but it was quite a brutal experience. And it was one of a number of things, I think, in my life that I maybe didn't spend the time properly processing what it had been like and what we'd gone through. For years afterwards, you know, every day people would talk to me about why did David Cameron decide to hold a referendum? And if they were on the Remain side, they thought it was the stupidest decision ever. And if they were on the Leave side, they thought it was great. And wasn't it wonderful that they defeated us? And so there was a lot of stuff swirling around there. And then I think there were a lot of things, you know, from my childhood, I had a difficult childhood. Um, you know, there were a lot of mental health issues around in, in um, people close to me when I was younger. And I hadn't really looked at those. And I think a lot of people in life kind of bury those things and they don't process those things properly or end up following pathways because of those things that they don't really um, aren't really the right thing. And as you get older, you realize actually maybe there's a different way or maybe I'm not doing this the right way. My mm. approach was to work harder and harder, throw more and more weight on myself. And I was sort of realizing that's not a great approach. There isn't going to be a moment where I suddenly cross the line and everything's OK and everybody says it's fine. Um, you maybe need to start looking at life slightly differently. I definitely want to go on and talk about, you know, your early days and things in a moment. But I suppose we have to put the Brexit thing to bed in a way as well. Um, you know, did you regret setting up a referendum? Did you think in in the aftermath that perhaps it wasn't the right move? Well, I hope it doesn't sound like an excuse. It, it, it really wasn't my decision. Um, do I think it was the wrong call? I think when you spend a lot of time thinking about it and put yourselves in the shoes of David Cameron, um, it's very easy to say, oh, you could have fought it, you could have pushed it off and you didn't really have to have it. If you were the Conservative leader at that time, you were surrounded by backbench MPs who were obsessed by the idea of having a referendum. They were amending legislation, voting down legislation. They were really circling and causing lots of problems. And I think David Cameron's idea was this is a huge issue. It's a massive boulder in the road of British politics. And my job is to try and take that boulder off the road and make a huge difference. Do I think that he thought he would lose? No. Did, do I think that he realised quite how divided the country was? No. And we've spent a lot of time since 2015 realising that there are a lot of divisions in societies all around the world and politics has exposed that. But at the time, it was something that not many people realised quite how divisive these issues were. 
the job of communications director or spin doctor, as people like to uh, nickname it, um, is is a pretty adversarial one. You know, it, it, you're, it's you against the world uh, most days in presenting, uh, you know, the picture that you want from Downing Street. And you're, you're, you're part of a small club, which I was quite interested in the existence of, of, of ex-spin doctors who, who do actually communicate with each other Um Ironically, uh, the likes of Alistair Campbell. Um, Alistair Campbell, Cam, Campbell very publicly has talked about sort of mental health issues and things. Do you think that it's a job that, that is actually too adversarial for its own good, unnecessarily so in a way? And that, that idea as human beings that you can control everything is, is an erroneous one that will only lead to unhappiness. I mean, that's such a big question, um... Mariella, I think there, there's lots of things in there. First of all, you know, yes, we do talk to each other, former um, directors of communications. And I saw yesterday, you know, Alistair Campbell tweeting about the podcast and saying it was a good addition to, um, you know, mental health coverage, that kind of thing. So, yes, the fact that you've been on opposite sides um, is one thing. But on the other side, you're in a position where you've actually experienced something that's that's very difficult. The first thing that you kind of realise when you go into number 10, and it sounds quite an odd thing to say, is there's an awful lot of journalists out there and not many of you inside. So you can feel slightly surrounded and end up in a kind of siege mentality. And I think early on, I thought that I needed to fight every single battle and not realise that actually the vast majority of people aren't paying attention to a lot of this stuff and that actually you're wasting a huge amount of energy. And if I did the job now, I think I possibly would have done it um, differently. I wouldn't have felt that I needed to constantly throw myself into rows and that kind of thing. I'd get up very early in the morning. You hear radio programs or look at newspapers and end up in discussions with journalists about finding things that are difficult. And if you're starting your day every day like that for six years, that's not going to be great for you in terms of how you approach life and how you get on and the stress and the pain of that. And what I would say is that, that it's quite an extreme job. But what I've discovered is talking to a lot of people is that they do feel that their jobs are a bit of a grind or their lives are a bit of a grind and that they're unnecessarily stressful. And what they want to do is try and find a way of how do I get rid of that stress and get to a point where life is actually a joyful experience. And my experience, having done a lot of reading around this, was I discovered a lot of thinkers who basically said, look, you live on a planet that's been in the in the universe for 13 and a half billion years. There are seven billion other people. What makes you think you can control everything? And what makes you think that ultimately you matter? Now, at first, that sounds slightly depressing view, but actually it's quite liberating when you realise that actually you're part of something that's far greater and that you're part of a much bigger system. You start to think, hang on a minute, this is an amazing opportunity. It is an extraordinary thing that I am on this amazing planet, have these amazing experiences. And when you talk to people who are finding life difficult and say to them that, would you rather be in a situation where you've never experienced any of this or would you prefer this? They all, I find, tend to say, for the most, vast majority, I'm glad that I'm here. And I think if you can focus on that, if you can shift your perspective to that of saying, look, life is a real gift and I'm going to enjoy it and be thankful that I'm here. That is an extraordinary thing. And I think that that's one of the things that really helped move me along. I stopped seeing it so much as a struggle and a fight and something that is actually to be enjoyed.
Do you see a, a degree of irony in, in, in the sort of reinvention of yourself from communications director at Downing Street to a sort of self-help guru advising people on how to find personal happiness? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I can see that it... I can totally see that you can uh, you could take the mick out of it. Um, first of all, I don't think I am a self-help guru. I'm very, very much in the foothills of this. The, the podcast is called Desperately Seeking Wisdom because basically I don't think I have some amazing monopoly. What I can say is that I went through a very, very um, stressful, difficult experience. And I found that when I was vulnerable enough to talk to people about that, um, not just in terms of Downing Street, but also in terms of my early life, that kind of thing. When I found that if I was willing to be vulnerable about that, a huge number of people would say, do you know, Craig, I feel the same. I do feel that life is a struggle. I do feel that I haven't dealt with things that are difficult in my past. And I found that through being open and discussing that, that creates and promotes a healthier attitude. So I went to some people that I knew, people like George Alagaya, who I worked with as when I was editing the BBC television news programmes, who I knew was a very wise and thoughtful person and wanted to hear what they thought or somebody like Richard Curtis or Richard Davids or, or Ruth, Ruth Davidson or any number of the other great guests that we've had on are having on the podcast. And I knew that they would have a lot to say and that that would help people. So it's not really about I am some guru. I'm certainly not. It is, OK, I found a bit of help in this. Why don't we talk about it a bit more and see where we get to? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Craig, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So let's go back to your childhood um, and let me hear a little bit about why that was a stressful, difficult time. I know that when you were 10, you, you moved from England to Scotland uh, to Stirling and, and found yourself, I think, perhaps the only English-accented child in a Sterling Comprehensive. Was that part of the problem? Well, there were a number of things. I mean, I was, as I say, I was surrounded by, um, you know, mental health issues, people with mental mental issue, health issues when I was what a child. What do you mean we by that? Because you say the... that, you, you say that, but, 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 but it doesn't I'm, I know mean... I'm being deliberately vague. Um, mm. uh, the reason is because, you know, that some of these people are still alive and I don't really want to go into detail. And it's kind of not really the point. It's just helping people understand, I think, that, you know, that there were difficulties there. We moved around the country a lot. My dad's job, um, we ended up moving every sort of two years. And we, when I was about 10, I ended up in 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 Scotland being a child in a um, an English child whose father was a chief constable in a Scottish comprehensive, let's say, was a character forming experience. Um, it was quite a bullying and aggressive place. 
I was talking to Justin Webb, who's actually one of the guests on the podcast coming up in a few weeks time. And we were talking about being a child at school in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, that actually he went to a private school. Actually, I went to a comprehensive. But both of us said that they were quite Lord of the Flies atmospheres and there were specific things about our backgrounds and experiences that made that difficult. There were other things that happened as well that I felt that that I hadn't really processed. When I was in my mid-teens, I used to go hill walking a lot. And there was one uh, New Year's uh, experience where I was climbing in, in a mountain and one of the party literally dropped down dead next to me and we had to be sort of get his body airlifted off the mountain and what was interesting about that time is I think it children now or teenagers now who'd been through an experience like that would be spoken to about it or make sure that there was some kind of you know processing of it had gone on and I remember looking back you know people sort of you know ask you're right but it wasn't really spoken about or dealt with and there were quite a number of things like that that I realized that had sort of built up over my lifetime that I hadn't really processed and what do you mean because processed is one of those words that people pick up you know in the therapist's room what do you mean by process that what impact do you think it had on you as a human being as a person you know you you clearly grew up into someone who 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 reveled craved desired high stress environments I mean were you why were you pitting yourself against the world like that why were you demanding so much of yourself how did it make you the person well, I, I, I think you I think you can come up with all sorts of theories about it I think I had got myself into a position where I thought if I just try hard enough a lot of the things that I feel uncomfortable and difficult about inside will go away people will say look you've succeeded in life you will feel you've succeeded in life and it was almost as if there was some kind of line that you cross and you feel happy and I'd been at it for pretty much 50 years and realized look this is just a, a circle that I am going around and it's not making me feel happy it's not making me feel good and I think as a society it's something that we should probably talk about more we are surrounded by people telling us that if we only try hard enough we can achieve anything if we just keep working and pushing we can get that extra thing that will make our life feel better and it's not really true. It's not something that works. And I think a lot of people feel empty, but they do feel that society puts them in a place where if you just push, if you just try. I was listening to a podcast, actually, when I came up with the idea of this, which was a kind of self-help podcast by somebody who's actually very famous. And they were talking to an Olympic athlete and they were propagating the idea that if you just push yourself, you can achieve anything. And I think that's a kind of pervasive attitude in society that doesn't necessarily really help and when I say process what I mean is that often we do have things that sort of you bury inside that cause you pain or make you feel um, worried or upset or difficult and you don't actually deal with them you don't actually go through it think it through feel it through and then let it sort of pass through you I think a lot of people don't do that they push it to one side they avoid it and a lot of society, I think, is that lots of people doing lots of things. I was a workaholic. Other people use alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever. But there's a lot of people in our society, I think, who are masking or avoiding or pushing things to one side and not really spending time dealing with it and processing but isn't th it. Does that make but sense? But isn't there a sense, uh, yes, it does, but isn't there a sense that dealing with it and processing it are 
are luxuries, really, and that for a huge swathe of the population, there isn't time or wherewithal to to sit about and think about uh, you know the traumas they've experienced in the past they have to look ahead they have to push themselves I mean in a way it's sort of at the heart of conservatism isn't it it's push yourself forward you know do what you have to do make your own way and um, you know so in a way what you're saying is slightly at, at odds with I think what I wouldn't we say it's just a, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's just a you know, a political thing. I think it is true that, you know, almost all media, almost all, you know, there is this sense of pushing achievement, that that kind of thing. And it is around everybody. And what I'm not saying is that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't try or find something that you want to do and spend your life focusing on those things. But I do think it is important. And I don't think it is a complete luxury to say, you know, if I've got feel that there there are troubles or difficulties inside that I am going to spend some time trying to sort of look at it that doesn't mean to say you necessarily have to go to an analyst but it does maybe mean facing up to some of the things that are difficult in your life and I don't think it is a luxury I think it's quite easy to push it to one side and point the finger and say you're middle class and you've got a you've got the wherewithal I think actually most people do have an opportunity or a chance and it's not to point the finger or say you know you should you should only just try in this different way it is saying though maybe if you thought about things differently you might feel a bit more comfortable and feel that life is less of a grind and more of a gift. I mean politics is obviously a famously unreconstructed arena Um, how would the new you uh, deal with the old Michael Gove for example who uh, I know in the past you said betrayal is a strong word but he did decide to back Brexit which took your breath away as it were do you think that you could have dealt with things differently and better having uh, gained the understanding you have now? I I like to think that I would probably not have fought every single battle to the degree that I did, that I didn't feel the need to, you know, every single story was something that was, a, you know, that I needed to make sure that I was on top of and controlling everything. And I think that that's one of the big, big lessons is. Are you also imbued with? Thinking, are you also are you also imbued with a sort of sense of forgiveness for people like like Gove and Boris Johnson? Um, for for the the reason that they made the decision that they did, yeah. I mean, look, mm-hmm. I understand why they backed Brexit. You know, I have concerns about the way in which some of that campaign operated. Do I forgive them for it? That sounds like a very grand thing to say, but it it happened and there's no point in me spending time feeling bitterness over it. If I did, um, you know, that would just make my present life much more of a, um, you know, much more difficult. It's better to actually, a lot of the people, a lot of the thinkers, a lot of the psychologists say that if we could actually spend more time focused on what's actually happening now, rather than picking over the past, we'd be happier. And I think that's true. A lot of people spend their time really picking over the past or trying to live in the future. Of, if I only just achieve this, then everything will be okay. A lot of people say the present is the only thing you have and will ever have. There is nothing other than now. So spend some time focusing on what is actually happening now and don't constantly pick away at things. That is, that's an important thing. And don't get caught up in bitterness and anger about things that are done. Let's go back to the podcast, Desperately Seeking Wisdom. Your first guest is George Alagaya, um, and he, it really is an extraordinary interview. I mean, I think he's incredibly giving. I think it's also rare, perhaps, to hear someone talk so honestly about the experience of being given a, a, a terminal diagnosis. You know, he's sort of outlived his diagnosis uh, to an extent, and, and realizing 
just how important the very simplest things in his life were. Were you really struck by what he had to say to you? Yeah, I'd worked with George um, at the BBC a number of years ago, and I'd always remembered that he was one of these people who'd achieved a lot in life, but was also somebody that you couldn't help but like. He did things in a way that was very straightforward, very open, very friendly, and yet was one of the most successful journalists in the country. And then he got um, diagnosed with bowel cancer. And what was really fascinating was talking to somebody who'd been living life at 200 miles an hour. He'd been running around the world, covering stories, that kind of thing. And then he suddenly hit a moment where the doctor said to him, look, you've got bowel cancer and it's very serious. You need to be in sort out your affairs territory. And I think that that listening to somebody talking about how they suddenly faced the fact this is real. I live in a world where it is possible to have an illness that is probably terminal and that means that all my assumptions about how I was going to get to the end with my wife, who I love very much, is not the case. And what's fascinating, I think, about the interview is him dealing with and learning to accept that and also coming to the conclusion that despite everything, life is a gift, not um, something that is just a veil of tears and pain. I was going to say the, the thing that really got to me was was he said actually you know you know it was a terrible diagnosis and you know he doesn't want to die but he wouldn't swap the last eight years of life that he's had as a result of that diagnosis because of the way he's learned to to treasure so many things and that really I mean that still almost brings a, a, a tear to my eyes extraordinary man clearly I just wondered uh, finally Craig you know it's been a, a pretty difficult time for the Conservative Party these past few months um as a former spin doctor, do you ever think, oh, just let me roll up my sleeves and get in there. I can sort this out, you know, from from Greensill to to MP second jobs to, you know, coronavirus to Christmas parties to, you know, do, do, do you feel still in there somewhere a bit of you going, I could fix this? I don't know that I could definitely fix it um, and make everything all OK. I think that experience teaches you. Um, certain ways of dealing things which aren't naturally your first conclusion or your first idea. I sort of would, would have loved in the last couple of months to ba basically say to a couple of people in Downing Street, look, you can have a little bit of pain now and basically rip the plaster off and deal with this now, or you can have a lot more pain long term. And I think that that was the, the inclination to sort of like not really deal with the issue about parties in Downing Street properly basically led to a lot more problems down the line. And I think that the, the experience taught me and what I would have said to them is, look, just come, come up front immediately. Say, look, this wasn't some mad rave where hundreds of people were in Downing Street. It's not an excuse, um, but it was people working together under extreme stress. We realise now that that was the wrong thing to do. We understand why people are upset who are making sacrifices. But I hope you realise that there are people who care about the country working in Downing Street and we can move on. I think if they would taken that kind of approach right at the very beginning and not tried to sort of um, get into detail over when is a party, not a party sort of thing, um, it would have probably been um, a lot less painful than it has actually been.
But isn't the problem saying, you know, well, it wasn't a big party, it was a small party. You know, I mean, what was being asked of the British people was pretty clear. It was don't have parties. It was don't have get No, together. I totally agree. So, so I, again, I totally it's, it's politicians it. going, it wasn't really like that. It was more like this. But actually, you little people shouldn't have been doing that. And, 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 but, but it's okay for us, you know. I mean, you talked at the very beginning mm. about, you know, feeling that there's a lot of journalists out there so you can feel under siege in that position as communications director. But isn't there also a sense that you can feel like a clique, you know, sort of all powerful against the world? Well, no, I, th I mean, I, th I think that's that's quite a cynical view of it. And I think that the second thing that I would just say is, look, you know, as I was saying, I don't think there is an excuse for it. I think they should have apologised and I think they should have said that they'd got it wrong. I do think that there is contextualizing information that the British public, when they hear, particularly if you do it early and in a way that is understanding and apologetic, that would make it better. And I think the problem is, is that not doing that has it allowed exactly the kind of a, attack that you've just outlined there. Very understandable, nothing wrong with that. Journalists need to keep people accountable. I totally understand that. And I don't think it is necessarily a clique. You know, it's very easy to, I think, point to, you know, people in Downing Street and say you're all powerful. We have quite a, you know, a robust and vociferous press who don't aren't very shy about criticising things. And that's how it should be. Government should be held accountable. Um, it's just that how do you approach that and how do you deal with that? Do you fight every battle and do you actually approach it in a slightly different way that makes it a more centered balanced experience than perhaps a lot of people experience who go through the role do you feel that your fears about what would happen if britain uh, left the european union were justified looking at the situation we're in at the moment economically well look i mean i don't want to duck the question too much i think it is too soon to tell we're not at a stage yet where we have proper you know trading terms sorted out it hasn't settled properly i still am of the view that it wasn't the greatest idea in the world to leave the EU for all sorts of reasons. I think it's the biggest trading bloc in the world. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that and in a way that allows frictionless trade? Also being part of a club of nations that's working together does, I'm afraid, give you more power on world stage and does put you in a position where you're listened to more. And a lot of people find that very hard to, to hear, but it's true. And I think, you know, there are other problems. Do I think we should spend the rest of our lives picking over it and saying it was, you know, the wrong decision and go, ha ha, I told you so. No, I don't. I think we are where we are. We need to, to deal with that and we need to move on. And that's the healthy approach to it. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Listener.